A Focus Summary of Chapters 3 and 4 of Frankenstein When he was seventeen, the stranger's parents sent him to school in Germany, where he might expand his educational horizons. Before he left, the first of his terrible misfortunes occurred. Elizabeth fell ill with scarlet fever, and when it seemed the disease might take her life, her mother insisted on caring for her herself. Elizabeth was saved, but Caroline sickened, and it soon became clear she would not recover. On her deathbed, she told the stranger and Elizabeth that her hopes for them lay in their future union. She died calmly, with an expression of affection on her face. In the first days, they suffered a bitter despair at the loss of one whose very existence appeared a part of their own. But at length, they learned to carry on with their responsibilities and to feel gratitude for those who lived. A few weeks later, he reluctantly departed for school in Ingolstadt, not wanting to leave his family, and especially Elizabeth, to their grief. But she veiled her own suffering and devoted herself instead to giving comfort to her uncle and cousins. The day before his departure was spent with Clerval, who longed himself to go to the university, but was forbidden by his father, a merchant who scorned the idleness of intellectual pursuits. The next morning at dawn, he was seen off by Clerval, his father, and Elizabeth. Riding away in the chaise, he reflected that he, who had always been surrounded by love and companionship, was now entirely alone. But his spirits rose at the thought that he would finally be able to satisfy that ardent yearning for knowledge in a way he never could at home. Arriving at the university, he paid a visit to some of his professors. As if some evil influence held sway over the stranger's every step, the first of these was Monsieur Kremp. He mocked the stranger's interest in the alchemists, saying that every instant he had spent studying them was time lost. He wrote down titles of the books that should now comprise his studies, and he mentioned that the following week he would be giving lectures on natural philosophy alongside the chemistry professor, Monsieur Waldman. The stranger was not disappointed by Crump's contempt for the alchemists, since he already considered them useless. But nor did this squat man with the gruff voice motivate him to study the modern natural philosophers, who seemed only to seek the annihilation of the grand ambitions of power and immortality on which his interest in science was based. After spending the first few days acquainting himself with the people and places of his new home, he thought of the lectures Kremp had mentioned. Though he was not eager to hear that conceited man lecture from his pulpit, he was interested in learning more about Waldman. This professor, with his sweet voice and benevolent expression, was very different from his colleague. His lecture was a fervent account of the great discoveries in the history of chemistry that ended with an impassioned speech about the modern state of the science. The ancient teachers, he says, promised impossibilities and delivered nothing. The modern chemists promise little but perform miracles by, quote, penetrating into the recesses of nature and showing how she works in her hiding places, unquote. These, he thinks, were the words of fate announced to destroy him, after which he was consumed by a single-minded purpose— 
to unfold the deepest mysteries of creation. And it's in his account of this turning point that we first learn his name. Quote, "'So much has been done,' exclaimed the soul of Frankenstein. "'More, far more, will I achieve.'" Unquote. That night, Frankenstein, for we can finally call him that, was in such a turmoil he could not sleep. The next day he went to see Waldman, whom he found to be even more mild-mannered and affable in person. Unlike Kremp, who scorned his interest in the alchemists, Waldman spoke of them admiringly as having laid the foundation for the discoveries of the modern philosophers. Frankenstein credited Waldman's lecture with having removed his prejudices against the modern chemists, and he strove to speak with a modesty that would not betray the fervency of his ambitions. Waldman was pleased to have found a disciple. He encouraged Frankenstein to study mathematics and every branch of natural philosophy to accompany his experiments. He showed Frankenstein his laboratory, telling him what equipment he should procure, and promising access to his own when Frankenstein was knowledgeable enough to use it. This was a day that would decide Frankenstein's future destiny. After that, natural philosophy and chemistry became Frankenstein's sole occupation. Even in Kremp, he found sense and real information, but in Waldman, he additionally found a true mentor and friend. He became so ardent in his work that he would often work into the lab until the early hours of the morning. For two years, he paid no visit to Geneva, because he was engaged, heart and soul, in his work. In that time, he improved so rapidly that he made discoveries which earned him great admiration at the university. At a certain point, he had mastered all that his teachers had to offer, and considered returning home when something happened to protract his stay. He was captivated by the question of whence the principle of life proceeds, and applied himself to it with a supernatural enthusiasm. To examine the causes of life entailed making a study of death, and he had to spend days and nights in vaults making careful observation of decaying corpses. From this darkness a light broke in upon him, and he discovered the cause of generation and life. He had reached the summit of his desires, and it brought a rapturous gratification. Frankenstein interrupts his story to say he can see that Walton is desperate to know his secret. But, he says, that cannot be. He will not lead Walton to his destruction and infallible misery. He hopes Walton will learn by his example the dangers of acquiring knowledge. The power of life in his hands, Frankenstein resolved to create a human being. Given the complexity of man, he doubted at first that he should succeed, but confident that he would learn from his attempts, he began work on the creation of a man of gigantic stature. He began to dream of the new species who would owe their existence to him, and to imagine that he might some day even have the power to restore the dead to life. All the hours spent working with breathless eagerness, late into the night, in the damps of the grave, torturing animals and dissecting corpses, having lost all sense for any but this pursuit, brought his work to a near conclusion, but took its toll. 
He had become pale and emaciated. His eyes had become insensible to nature, and he had neglected his absent friends. At the time, he believed himself justified in the single-minded pursuit of his ambitions. But in retrospect, he believes that any passion which destroys the taste for simple pleasures does not befit the human mind. Night after night, season after season, he remained deeply engrossed in his occupation, and as his progress showed, his anxiety increased, until he began to shun his fellow men as if he were guilty of a crime. He was a wreck, and only the energy of his purpose sustained him. He promised himself exercise and enjoyment only when his creation was complete.' 